0: Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm so thrilled to be joined by writer and director of, of Netflix's movie Passing, Rebecca Hall. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the scriptwriting process because, you know, you wrote the first draft for this when you first read the book incredibly quickly in just a few days um, and have said that, that that first draft had a lot of the nuts and bolts but felt like it was too heavy in terms of the exposition. And what's so beautiful about this film is it's really not exposition heavy. It really allows the audience to kind of take interpretations and do some of the work in terms of how we read the story on screen. And so what was that process for you in terms of taking the initial draft and, and going back to it time and time again and figuring out where you could strip away a lot of that initial exposition?
1: Yeah, in many ways, I think the sort of the process of writing this screenplay, which, you know, yes, it took 10 days to get the first draft out, but it was 15 years until it was in the can. And then you know, then you you write it all over again in the edit on some level. But I think that the process has really paralleled my learning curve of how to make a movie. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, I think there was a, a lot of naivety about how much needed to be stated in earlier drafts. And time gave me the luxury of being able to edit away and edit away and edit away. And, and it's funny, although, even though if you watch the film and did a sort of compare and contrast to the first draft of the script that was written in after those 10 days, mm-hmm. there's probably a not a lot that's similar about it. There's a, you know lots of scenes and things that have been omitted, but in many ways, the sort of, if it feels, the process feels almost more like an adaptation of something. It's like you, you get further away from something in order to get closer to its essence in the first place. Like the idea of the movie that was in my head that I tried to express in those 10 days is still the thing that I was trying to get back to 15 years later, no matter how many times you rewrite, redraft, re-edit, you know, it's still, I'm still trying to get, I'm getting it. So in a weird way you get further away in order to get closer to the original thing.
0: I was also really interested in your relationship with the language and the way that you worked with a lot of the dialogue specifically, because, you know, there is a lot of 1920s kind of period specific language, but also at the same time, there's kind of a playfulness and there's moments where you allow more modern language but- in like the uh, the argument between Irene and Brian towards the end of the film is kind of like a great example of, of that real myriad of different language forms. Um, did you kind of know early on that you really wanted to have that scope of language and that you didn't want to kind of keep yourself fully constrained or, or what was yeah, the precipice yeah. of where that was? I, I
1: gave myself complete freedom to sort of write, write, write their voices how it felt like they should be written. And there were times when it felt that it, it needed the formality of that period language because you know a lot of these characters they have they have a layer they have a veil of propriety which they are adopting and with that comes a sort of formal language play you know I think sometimes when Irene and Hugh talk there's a sort of there's a repartee form you know you say one thing I counter it with the other thing and then we have the punchline you know it's sort of there's a there's a there's a social repartee of wit and language play that feels very um, important to the characters so there were times when it felt like the formality needed to be heightened and there were other times when it felt that I didn't need to worry about it and you know I, I definitely gave myself so much freedom that, there, that at one point the script was littered with a ton of modern colloquialisms like okay and yes I, you know whatever, yeah whatever, whatever it was and I remember having to sort of change at one point because I sort of thought actually nobody can say okay even though okay existed it wasn't as commonplace as fine for example or you just sort of replace it with that but I ultimately I think the the periods stuff comes across more in the pacing than it does the actual words because often I was just when I wasn't taking dialogue from the book of which there is hardly any actually um, I was really sort of writing to my own imagination and I don't know if it was period accurate or not and a lot of it was about rhythm more than anything else
0: yeah, I love that. And there's so much great subtext in in the way that you've written the lines of this movie and every single thing that a character says, there's such an undercurrent to it. And, you know, I mean, Ruth Negger's character, Claire is such a great example across the board with that, where she walks into every room with such an external confidence and yet there's so much inner turmoil, um, you know, and fear and trauma and processing underneath the surface. Um, and what are the challenges in when you're writing the script and really finessing a character like that and, and kind of all the moments and really just always thinking about what's being said out loud is often really not the truth that's being presented, but finding the subtext
1: in that. Well, Claire was in many ways the easiest one to write because she's very, despite the one who's wearing the obvious mask, she actually does say what she's feeling a lot of the time. You know, if she's feeling, if she's feeling melancholy or lonely or longing for something, she says it. And she was also dazzling, you know, she's very charismatic. And and most of the time she's just living life freely and having fun. You know, of course, her very existence is charged with this danger, but she does live. And Irene was the tricky one because you she presents to the world as someone who's got it all figured out and is doing the morally right thing and is being the right kind of. You know woman right kind of member of the black community right kind of wife right kind of mother and as the story progresses you realize that that is unraveling and is none of it is true it's just an edifice and it's just claire's existence makes it shatters it and this woman doesn't actually have any idea who she is or what she wants or who she wants to be um, and has very little freedom in fact far less freedom than claire to forge her own identity in the world and is having a nervous breakdown as a result. And that was very difficult to write because you sort of, you know, you don't want to do a voiceover. You don't want to give her a friend to talk to. It it becomes really about the sort of spaces and the quiet moments and the moments of reflection and the things that are not said rather than the things that are said. You know, it's about lingering on her face when she says defiantly and defensively satisfied. I am, I'm satisfied. When her husband says, rot, who's satisfied with anything. She says, no, I am. And you know, in that flicker of adamant, the lady doth protest too much, you know, it's like, I, I, am, I am satisfied, everything is fine. Everything is fine. But it's just that space around that line that allows you that insight. And also making sure that they're not facing each other so you have the opportunity to see that. Mm-hmm. And um, allowing for that kind of contra narratives. You know, there's, I, I think I always thought in the writing, you know, there's, there's the thing that is being spoken about and then there's the thing that is really being spoken about and then there is the visual language of their bodies and space how they are interacting how they are looking at each other that is telling a whole other story that informs the other two layers but it has to be threefold all the time there's the stuff that the actor can say and know what the subtext is and then there's the stuff that they don't know that's unconscious to the character that comes out in their body um, you know so that was that was always the sort of mo
0: No, I really love that because within the visual language of the film and and kind of going back to what you were saying just now about those moments where you really allow us to linger with a moment and linger with a character, you know, so much of that comes into the way that you framed this film and the fact that you've really used the space and where the characters are and, and moments where, like you said, where they're not facing each other to kind of allow us to really live in the scene and have these long continuous shots. And maybe it's that we're seeing a character through the reflection in a mirror to then come back to them in the moment within the room. Was that something that very early on, when you started thinking about the visual language of the film, that it was important to you to let the scenes really live and breathe and, and finding how you wanted to film it. And also what it says about the movement of the camera, the reflections that you use.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's this sort of, there's this, there is a sort of another layer of this movie that's very much about the the sort of the spectrum on which the film itself is self-conscious um if that makes any sense like there's a sort of the film has its own performance the film is passing um you know there's a kind of black and white and all the rest of it but there's a sort of where it chooses to linger and how how present it is in any scene it was something that i thought about a lot and it's but really i just i kept thinking about how there's so much um there's so much social propriety and, you know, it's very English in a way. It's all like, you know, social norms and tea and blah, blah, and say the right thing and behave well. And, you know, but I I, I always felt that despite that being the sort of top layer of it, there is an incredibly sensual subtext that's really about f- feeling your way through situations I don't just mean erotic although I do also mean erotic but it's it's sort of sensual it's about texture and sound and feeling and you know whether it's like the sound of Claire's stockings rubbing against each other or the teacups making that specific noise and I think it's that always felt to me like a way to bring it into an interiority that is that is feeling so for as much as it can be you know there's this sort of there's this crackling sensual energy that's underneath every shot and that and that's sort of about sometimes was about having the um confidence to decide to shoot a really unconventionally close close up in the middle of a scene where it doesn't merit it textbook wise or or play something in a much wider shot so you can see the body language of something going on that you wouldn't otherwise see or also telling the story through external mediums whether it's a crack in the ceiling or you know the hand on the railing or the mirrors or the flower pot breaking shattered symbolism you know finding ways to bring in symbolism into this world as well so it feels that there's a larger world outside of what is a very claustrophobic small world being presented Mm -hmm. you know there's a sort of fateful world as well in a way
0: and in those moments where you bring the camera really close up it has even more of kind of almost a claustrophobic feeling on the characters in their moments because of the aspect ratio being four three as well so we're even
1: closer in it just meant that the two shots would get really claustrophobic, which I loved, like, you know, people had to very close or stand very close to each other in order to stay in the frame. And that yeah. actually that sort of constraint gave it, it gives an energy to the scene. You know, if you force two people to play a scene incredibly close together, there's a sort of tension that happens naturally as well that, that translates to the shot.
0: With the fact that that the aspect ratio part of that choice was about creating that constraint that, that you're talking about there, what were some of the other visual cues that you really wanted to create within the language of the film on screen that would have that similar impact and that similar effect?
1: Well, I think a lot. there's a lot of sort of shadow and light play, which, you know, sounds sort of obvious for a black and white film. But I think in this instance, it was very specific in that, we were really trying to play with the idea of how things look differently according to context. Um, and there's a freedom with black and white in terms of the mutability of these women's faces. I mean, you know, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negger, they don't pass in life in, in colour necessarily. And that was very deliberate. You know, it's the sense of actually, let's take two people who you see entirely as these people and put them in this context and then ask you to believe that other people are seeing them differently. Because why wouldn't they? You know, the world doesn't look how we look at the world in black and white. It looks completely different. It's its own context. And even within that context, we were then able to play... With those, um, with those extremes, and push it. So you know, in the, in the in the hotel room scene, which is really dominated by the presence of John, the racist husband, his world, his his room is unnaturally white. It's you know the walls are white, the costumes are brighter. The there's a huge amount of unnatural light coming in through a window, so everyone looks sort of overexposed and completely, sort of sort of bleached in a way. And that's very deliberate because the sort of, yes, practically it's there, but it's not just about sort of, you know, does John believe what he sees? It's also about he has the power to dictate his context. So he's the most powerful man in that room. So he gets to see what he wants to see. In a sense, he makes his world white. And then when she moves into Harlem, that's the first time that we really start playing with darker tones on the walls and shadows, which immediately changes how you perceive a face in relation to that wall, or that like costume change or whatever it is. I mean, all these details were very, were very specifically thought out. And I, you know, I loved all that stuff.
0: Yeah. And with those details as well, particularly in reverence to it being a black and white film, it's obviously, you know, so much use of colour in all the shades of grey that you get to explore within that medium. And, and like you said, you've really kind of used it to tell a story about character in terms of the costume, the the lights and the shadow. Um, you know, but also it, it's quite interesting because you have to think about what are the actual colours and textures that characters are wearing on screen? What are the details in the production design and how is yeah. that going to read differently? You know, what colour of grey, what shade is that going to read as on screen? did you have the opportunity to do a lot of screen tests or or was Uh, i mean
1: we 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 were on a very small budget so we didn't have we had a day i think where we got to do some camera tests and if that and we certainly didn't get to do any on walls and things but we had we took a we did some we ran some tests with just some color board um and sort of thought about how uh, different colors on the wall affect the the feel of a, of, a, of a house. And in the end, we ended up painting the entire of the Redfield house like the most uh, garish shade of fire engine red. I mean, this whole brownstone was painted the inside of it <laughs> and it looks beautiful. It's just the right level of warmth and in the gray. Uh, but it, it looks ridiculous in real life. <laughs> but that was true of a lot of things. I mean, I remember one day uh, Ruth had a shade of lipstick that was almost black. Uh, But it looked like a red on camera, and it was it was really fascinating to see that process. But we all started just thinking in black and white after a while. I mean, all the monitors were black and white. Edu, the cinematographer, ended up switching his entire iPhone over to black and white all the time for like you know (laughs) the twenty three days that we shot. So we were all you know we all started dreaming in black and white after a certain point.
0: And you know, you were talking there about Claire's husband and and the use of of white there in terms of the costumes and how you use that to tell a story. And with Claire and Irene, there's so much storytelling that goes into the costumes. It's not just about them being really beautiful period pieces. What were the most important details to you and how you told a story through their
1: costumes? Well, I wanted there was I remember Marcy Rogers is kind of a genius and um truly, truly brilliant at what she does. And I don't, to this day, I don't know how she achieves at the budget level that she has, what she achieved for this movie, because it is extraordinary. But one of the things that was really instrumental was that we had some conversations, and this is a conversation that I have with every head of department about, you don't, you know, I, every everything is passing in this film, everything. It's not just the actors, it's not just the characters, it's not just the story, it's like everything has to be passing. And to that end, I sort of said, you know, they don't have to wear period clothing. I would rather that their clothing were more eloquent to something of their character. And just pass for 1920s. <laughs> you know, and 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 Claire, funnily enough, often wears clothes from the 40s. Uh, she has like the shoulder pads in some scenes. And it's, it's so slight as to be almost unnoticeable, but I suppose the unconscious effect of it is that you bring into your unconscious brain some sort of trigger to do with like the more powerful women of those, of the 40s and 50s that had the kind, that were forward and a little getting, you know, moving towards a sort of radicalism in how to be a woman and sort of post-World War II. And that felt so right for Claire that she should exist somehow out of time even just a little bit you know that she is her own person and Irene's costumes are much more rigid but also betray a sort of sensuality like she has this she's always you know I'm I'm not I'm not showing anything of myself but deep down you have this feeling that actually there's a there's a real sensual being in there that is suppressed everything and so there's that the costume for example that she wears to the town hall i always thought was a really interesting choice because she irene comes down the stairs and complains about it and actually she's got she's got much more skin on display than claire and in many ways she's wearing something that's very sort of um sexy And it's like she's she's done it almost unconsciously and then she's completely covered it up because she comes downstairs and she's like I have picked the wrong thing I've entirely picked the wrong thing, and you look beautiful and but it's like she's not allowing herself to be sensual and that's true of her character. Yeah. I also wanted to
0: talk about the opening of the film because it's so kind of deliberate the way that you start with such soft focus and gradually bring Tessa Thompson onto the screen. You know, we kind of don't even see her whole face at the beginning, and the lines and the edges of, of the framing are very soft at the beginning. And then gradually she comes into focus more and more for us. Um, and we're just really interested in the choices that you made and how you wanted to frame and, and bring her on screen for the first time in the story for us. Well, the opening of the
1: movie was always a, a point of real. Um obsession for me if i'm being honest and it's some it's an idea that the feet thing was an idea that i had pretty early on if not in the first draft of the scripts 15 years ago um it was it was really it came from an idea that people use when they're talking about making musicals funnily enough (laughs) which is you know you have to educate the audience as to what the world is within the first three minutes otherwise they're never going to accept it so make sure that you do a song within the first three minutes of the film. Um, and I sort of applied the same logic to this movie. And I was like, well, I have to educate the audience that this is going to be a very quiet film. And that if you don't, if you don't lean in and pay attention and join up the dots and look for the clues that are giving you the subtext, you'll miss it. And you'll think that nothing happens and it's quite boring and fine. But I want to try and educate you in the first three minutes of this movie that you're going to be a little bit, off your guard and you've got to pay attention so the idea was to instead of doing a big sweeping here's the 1920s it's the jazz age was to counterintuitively do something that starts in silence and brings you into a fog of perception until you're sort of trying to perceive where you are what's happening and by the time it does come into focus and you still haven't seen anybody you have hopefully gleaned that you're in New York, that it's period, that it's probably the 20s by the sounds, the traffic sounds, that it's hot, that it's the summer. You've got some sort of feelings of discomfort and you don't really know why. (laughs) And then that launches you into a scene which, when nothing really happens it's a woman in a toy store and someone drops something and she pays for something that's all that happens but you're already feeling like you're in a thriller and you don't really know why and that someone is in danger possibly and then she goes outside and there's someone who has just dropped dead inexplicably and so you're even more off your you know you're you the the ground is shifted again and you feel uncomfortable again and so it's it's just ways of creating uh psychological tension um and I'm so glad there that you brought up
0: the idea of the moments of silence in terms of the sound design of the film, because one of my favorite things is the deliberateness of sound when we hear it, you know, and even when we hear music, it's, it's never superfluous. It's OK, there's a musician across the street that they're hearing for a particular reason within the narrative. And so by the time you get to the jazz party for Hugh Wentworth, it just it feels very noisy, but very deliberately noisy in that moment. And you're never afraid to let the audience just sit in moments of silence in terms of characters performing. And and the sound design, and I know that when you were in post, you went in and redid the sound mix three times because that was yeah. <laughs> really trying to finesse. But what what were some of the things that kept changing for you, or or was shifting or evolving each time you were working on the sound design in
1: post? It was it was it was not dissimilar to the script's work. It was about editing. You know, I think I think there's a trend, there's a fashion, and it's understandable. You know, you you send your movie off for the first pass of the sound design and and there's an instinct to cover all the silences with with atmospheric noise because we're always living in a noisy environment right that's the idea it's like even when we think there's quiet the radiator is making noise or the rain is dripping off the roof or whatever it is or the birds outside or the car and so all that all that noise gets put into a film and i was fixated with this idea that we are we are trying to enter the brain of someone who is not seeing the world clearly, but also not hearing it clearly. She's hearing what she wants to hear at any given time. So we have to perceive the world how she perceives it. And that means that even though there might be a bird in a car horn and a whatever, at some times it is oppressively still and it has to be still and quiet. And that doesn't mean that there isn't some sound, some texture, but that finding that place that's silent but not silent and that sort of like the perception of it shifting um, was very delicate work that actually takes a lot it's a lot harder to make a quiet film than it is a noisy one as it turns out. I mean it's just very it's just very precise work because you do and that I'm not I'm really not joking when I say there isn't a blue jay squawk or a traffic horn beep that isn't, that I didn't spend probably hours thinking about whether or not it should be there. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I love the detailing in all of that.
0: It really, really kind of shows in in the making of the film. And I also wanted to talk about that final scene in the movie um, where, you know, Claire's standing by the window because there's such fascinating ambiguity in that moment. I mean, every single time I watch this film, I go back and I rewind on that scene every single time, because each time you kind of can see it with a different perspective and and different moments. Um, was Was that quite a challenging scene to film because it is so much the crux of everything happening and in terms of the choices that you're making, both directing and in the way that you've edited that scene, it's so specific and every single kind of frame really counts for so much.
1: Yes, every edit, every um, every tiny gesture, even the framing. I mean, you know, we shot on digital, so there was there was opportunity sometimes to reframe things. And I'm just going to use this as a sort of odd example. But there's a there's a shot of Claire as she's walking towards the window that we f- were following her, and she's sort of in the centre of the frame. And then she just speeds up slightly, and we lose her right so we get half of her face as the camera's still moving before we shift to Irene's perspective as she's equally moving this way towards the door where someone's just knocked and I spent I mean weeks deliberating about whether I should reframe the shot to include Claire's face all the way through and not have her half out and when I did it which is the sort of obvious thing to do I remember my cinematographer saying to me you know you can't she's just like you've just gone out of the shot you can't just reframe it so we keep her face in the shot and I did it because it felt like the appropriate thing to do and then I watched the whole movie and the ending didn't land in the same way and I remember going back and being like what is it what have I done and then I went back to the shot And it's ghostly. There's something, I can't explain to you what it is, but there's something ghostly about this idea that we can't catch this character. That she's like, the camera is trying to catch her, but she's just, she's just gone. And it foreshadows what's just about to happen in this sort of very sort of eerie way. And those sort of tiny details had such huge consequences. And I would deliberate about them again and again and again and again, but that's just like a little example. But every single single exchange in that sequence tips it in a different direction so if you change something even even slightly it turns into it's more obvious that he pushed her or it's more obvious that she pushed her or it's more obvious that she jumped or and so finding the the finding the medium where all things could be possible all the time and they also had this sort of string between them and there was also this feeling of the surreal which was very important to me you know that there should be a sort of surreality that's not a word surrealism to 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 the feeling directly after her having gone out the window because i think there is a sort of weirdness you know it, you know the the sort of the obvious thing to shoot after that would be a lot of commotion and a lot of screaming. And I wanted it to be like a sort of drip effect. Like nobody in the room really understands what's going on. And again, we're very much in Irene's head which is sort of white noise, you know? And she's like, what just happened? And so she's not looking out the window and she's looking at everyone else. And that, that sort of making that decision not to see Claire on the snow until everyone has gone out of the room and commotion has died down. Um, you know, that, that was a tough one as well, but I think really creates that um, weirdness again.
0: I mean, the, the absolute level of kind of thought and detailing at every single frame throughout the film is exactly why it works so brilliantly. So thank you so much for sharing all of this. Really appreciate your time, Rebecca.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much.